Good morning, Valley Forge, King of Prussia and the greater Philadelphia area. This is We the People, the Constitution Matters, coming to you over the freedom airways of WFYL. And I'm your host, Pastor David Whitney, and uh, serve as Institute on the Constitution senior instructor. But my two great Friday morning collaborators, Phil Duffy, our constitutional instructor, and Mike Jeremita, who we say is our warrior in the courtroom, are with me on this fine Friday morning. And we're starting a, a new series. This is a, a short series in contrast to many of our longer series. We're going to look at uh, several reports, three reports specifically, that Alexander Hamilton was the author of to get an insight into how the Constitution, after it was ratified, was being interpreted or we might say misinterpreted and, and in some perspectives uh, distorted from what its actual purpose was to specify the delegated limited, enumerated powers of the federal government, powers that were fixed, kind of like a uh, you take a piece of wood that you want to cut and you fix it in a vice, you clamp it down tight because you don't want that thing to move. Well, that's the idea that Thomas Jefferson had of the Constitution. He said, let us chain down the men, that is the men who elect office, with the Constitution. So the Constitution was a chain preventing them from going any further than the chain, the links of the chain would permit them to. But we're going to see as we study what Alexander Hamilton developed and, uh, again, what happened in the course of uh, interpreting or misinterpreting the Constitution, that there is where it started to diverge from the path of that limited, delegated, enumerated set of powers set forth in the actual document of our United States Constitution. So, uh, Phil, why don't you bring us your thoughts on this first report, uh, of Alexander Hamilton. Well, Hamilton's first report of public credit is the first of three reports to the House of Representatives. The first report proposed full federal payment at face value to holders of government securities, also known as redemption, with the federal government to assume funding of all state debt, which is called assumption. Wikipedia describes debt under the Articles of Confederation. During the American Revolution, the Continental Congress, under the Articles of Confederation, amassed huge war debts but lacked the power to service these obligations by tariffs or other taxation. As an expedient, the revolutionary government resorted to printing money and bills of credit, but that currency rapidly underwent depreciation. To avoid bankruptcy, the Continental Congress eliminated $195 million of its $200 million debt by, that, uh, by fiat. After the American Revolutionary War, the continental currency called continentals would be deemed worthless. With its finances in disarray, the legislature abdicated its fiscal responsibilities by shifting them to the 13 states. When the state legislatures failed to meet quotas for war material by local taxation, Patriot armies turned to confiscating supplies from farmers and tradesmen, compensating them with IOUs of uncertain value. By the end of the war, over 90 million in state debt was outstanding. Much of the state and national fiscal disorder, exacerbated by an economic crisis in urban commercial centers, had remained unresolved when the report was issued. And we should consider this the official narrative. It may be essentially true, but there are nuances. The account seems to blame the government under the Articles of Confederation, with the implication that the faulty Articles of Confederation were replaced with nearly faultless constitution, which formed a more powerful federal government with independent funding powers. The National Archives website 
puts the timing into perspective. The Articles of Confederation were adopted by the Continental Congress on November 15, 1777. This document served as the United States' first constitution. It was enforced from March 1, 1781 until 1789, when the present-day constitution went into effect. Military operations had begun April 19, 1775 at Lexington and Concord, and the 13 colonies were declared to be independent states on July 4, 1776. With most of the war conducted by March 1, 1781, when the Articles of Confederation went into effect, the British Army under General Cornwallis surrendered less than eight months after Yorktown, uh, ending uh, military uh, operations. The British evacuated Charleston uh, December 14, 1782, and New York on November 25, 1783. Outlays for military operations from October 19, 1781 until the Treaty of Paris in 1783 should have been minimal. This statement by Wikipedia is probably misleading. During the American Revolution, the Continental Congress, under the Articles of Confederation, amassed huge war deaths but lacked the power to service these obligations by tariffs and other taxation. <clears throat> Unlike the government created by the Constitution in March of 1789, which had six years of peace in back of it, the government formed under the Articles of Confederation was formed during wartime and had inherited significant wartime debts. There was nothing magical in the formation of the Constitution in economic terms. The same resources were available for payment of wartime debts under both forms of government. What the Constitution of 1787 had granted the federal government were additional coercive powers, specifically the Article I, Section 8 power to lay and collect taxes, duties, imposts, and excises. There was a proviso that was subsequently overwritten by the 16th Amendment, allegedly ratified in 1913, that also applied under the Articles of Confederation. Direct taxes shall be apportioned among the several states according to their numbers. The duties imposed in excises represented new taxing powers for the federal government, which would collect them directly. To the extent these taxes had previously been collected by the states, formation of the government under the uh, Constitution merely changed the tax collector. To the extent that these were new taxes, they still came out of the pockets of the citizenry. It was not as if the federal government was operating some huge farm and had decided to make more of the farm's resources available for the elimination of debts. The government under the Constitution did have the benefit of an immense asset, ownership of most of the land west of the Allegheny Mountains. It did not acquire these lands, however. That asset resulted from successful peace negotiations undertaken by the representatives of the Articles of Confederation in 1783. In other words, Alexander Hamilton did not create the resources to eliminate the war debt. Instead, he submitted a plan to Congress that included the coercive provisions for extracting the wealth from the citizenry to allow the war debt to be paid. So what is the nature of the debt and the uh, uh, events in Europe? <clears throat> the debt Hamilton addressed in his first report in public credit was government debt, not private commercial debt. The federal government was indebted to the soldiers and sailors 
It had employed during the War of Independence, as well as private contractors who had provided supplies for the military. Some of those had been paid by loans from foreign governments, specifically the French and the Dutch governments. There was little disagreement about the importance of meeting these obligations. There was also federal debt associated with the normal operation of the government under the Articles of Confederation. How those debt obligations were to be resolved was specified in Article Article 8 of the uh, Articles of Confederation. All charges of war and all other expenses that shall be incurred for the common defense or general welfare and allowed by the United States in Congress assembled shall be defrayed out of the common treasury which shall be supplied by the several states in proportion to the value of all land within each state granted to or surveyed for any person as such land and buildings and improvements thereon shall be estimated according to such mode as the United States in Congress assemble shall from time to time direct and appoint. The taxes for paying that proportion shall be laid and levied by the authority and direction of the legislatures of the several states within the time agreed upon by the United States in Congress assembled. The states in providing militia had also incurred debts. Hamilton submitted a separate report to the House of Representatives on the subject of the National Bank to be discussed subsequently. So let's talk about the concepts of redemption and discrimination. To understand the plan for debt management, we can think of it in three categories. The idea of redemption applies to obligations of the federal government, both to foreign nations in the form of loan payments and to domestic creditors. The former group, primarily the governments of France and Holland, were easy to identify. The indebtedness to the latter group proved to be a sticky problem. Most of that indebtedness was a byproduct of the War of Independence representing pay due to soldiers and sailors who had served in the regular armed services of the United States and to military suppliers. The problem was that the original holders of the debt instruments had lost confidence in being fully uh, paid and had often traded them to others, usually at a significant discount. The federal government in 1790 had three possibilities open to it for discharging these debt obligations. First, purchase the debt secretly at market prices, the least costly alternative. Second, attempt to identify the original holders of the debt instruments paying them at face value, but denying payment to subsequent bearers of the debt instruments. This is the concept of discrimination. Third, pay the current bearers of the debt instruments at face value. First alternative was technically possible, but would have required secret government agents to buy up the debt at market prices. Of course, the news would leak and the new federal government would have been discredited. Hamilton was wise not to pursue that alternative. Concerning the second alternative, Hamilton opposed, pointing out the difficulty in administration. Hamilton proposed a third alternative, which opened the door to wild speculation. Before considering the justice of Hamilton's proposal, let's reflect on the nature of the debt. The debt instruments issued to individuals must have been transferable, negotiable instruments, or they would not have been purchased by subsequent owners. Investopedia defines a negotiable instrument as a signed document that promises a payment to a specified person or uh, a signee. In other words, it is a formalized type of IOU, a transferable signed document that promises to pay the bearer of a sum of money at a future date or on demand. Redemption of the debt was reasonable. 
But there is a political problem that is described by John Meacham in Thomas Jefferson, The Art of Power. Funding the debt, which basically meant the federal government would pay holders of federal securities their nominal or face value, which was higher than their original value, was controversial. For speculators had been purchasing the, those securities from the securities initial holders for less than Hamilton was proposing to pay the current holders. A political and emotional complication was that many of the initial holders were Revolutionary War, uh, Revolutionary War veterans unaware that the paper they owned was about to be worth more. They often had been paid for their services in continental paper. Schroeder, speculators, Madison told Jefferson, were exploring the interior and distant part of the Union in order to take advantage of the ignorance of the holders. There's little doubt that this was occurring, but singling out a class for special protection is not only an emotional appeal, it is also degrading to those who were so privileged and dangerous to the concept of government under a free market. The original holders of the debt were offered a price to transfer the debt, and they chose to transfer it to someone else. There was no fraud involved. In a free market economy, those entering into transactions are free to make their choice. There can be no discrimination between those with more knowledge and those with less. Let's take a look at state debt assumption. Hamilton also proposed that state debts be assumed by the federal government. There was a great deal of resistance to the idea, which was reflected in the proposal's defeat in the House of Representatives led by James Madison. At the very least, the proposal was inequitable. Meacham commented in Thomas Jefferson, the assumption proposal instantly divided the nation. Four states, Virginia, North Carolina, Georgia, and Maryland, had already been fiscally responsible and paid off much of the revolutionary debts. Others, chiefly Massachusetts, South Carolina, and Connecticut, had not and were therefore quite happy to send their bills to Hamilton in New York. The more fiscally responsible states believed that they would inevitably end up paying federal taxes to bail out their lagging neighbors. That resistance was overcome as a result of the infamous dinner table bargain in which Jefferson supported a compromise that gave Hamilton his assumption of state debt, while the southern states got the federal capital moved from New York to the banks of the Potomac. According to Meacham, Jefferson knew matters were uh, uh, dire. The Congress seemed paralyzed. It was a real fact, he said, that the Eastern and Southern members had gotten into the most extreme ill humor with one another, leading to an atmosphere marked by the most alarming heat and the bitterest animosities. Jefferson appreciated the need for unified action. Unlike many of his fellow Virginians, the Secretary of State was not reflex reflexively opposed to assumption. The American Experience website is so enamored with the compromise engineered by Jefferson that it made this statement, a grand and lasting compromise has been achieved. But there were two major principles that were destroyed in the compromise. The first was the responsibility of the parties in the contract. The states had incurred obligations which some met while others were willing to shunt their obligations onto the responsible states. Hardly a just solution to the problem. The second principal violation was more severe over the longer term. Until the constitutions were ratified by the states, the federal government did not exist. When they were ratified, the federal government only enjoyed sovereignty over limited enumerated objects. There was nothing in the Constitution of 1787 
that allowed the federal government to impair the obligation of contracts generally. And specifically, there was nothing allowing the federal government to assume state debts. The result was an implied recognition of the federal government with super sovereignty, the power to tax and dispense the funds to the states as subordinates of the federal government. Once that principle had been accepted, this nation gradually evolved into a situation in which the federal government was the master of the states, dictating their actions if they wished to continue receiving the tax booty. Once a completely fiat dollar had been established in the 20th century, the complete domination of the states by the federal government was completed. So how were the funds raised and what were the consequences? While Hamilton was no strict adherent to the Constitution, he did get one thing correct about the federal government being granted taxing powers. At the time Hamilton wrote his report on public credit, there was also a constraint on directly taxing citizens of the United States. Direct taxes shall be apportioned among the several states, which may be included within this union, according to their respective numbers, which shall be determined by adding to the whole number of free persons, including those bound to service for a term of years, and excluding Indians not taxed three-fifths of all other persons. This constraint was removed with the 16th Amendment in 1913, which essentially made the American people tax serfs in bondage to the federal government. In 1790, the original wording of Article 1, Section 2 was meant to guard personal freedom. Consistent with that, Hamilton proposed a combination of tariffs and domestic excise taxes to fund the redemption of the federal debt and the assumption of state debt. But the economic logic of indirect taxes versus direct taxes is flawed, as would soon be demonstrated. Indirect taxes, like tariffs and excise taxes, are no less painful than direct taxes. It is the amount of the tax and who it impacts that determines the amount of tax pain. Wikipedia tells the story of the Whiskey Rebellion. There was a consequence of Hamilton's proposal. The Whiskey Rebellion was a violent tax protest in the United States beginning in 1791 and ending in 1794 during the presidency of George Washington. The so-called Whiskey Tax was the first tax imposed on domestic product by the newly formed federal government. Beer was difficult to transport, transport and spoiled more easily than rum and whiskey. Rum distillation in the United States had been disrupted during the American Revolutionary War, and whiskey distribution and consumption increased afterwards. The whiskey tax became law in 1791 and was intended to generate revenue for the war debt incurred during the Revolutionary War. The tax applied to all distilled spirits, but consumption of American whiskey was rapidly expanding, and in the late 18th century, so the excise became widely known as a whiskey tax. Farmers of the western frontier were accustomed to dis distilling their uh, surplus rye, uh, barley, wheat, and corn, or fermented grain mixtures, to make whiskey. The action against the, uh, the rebels was initially led by George Washington, who reviewed the troops east of the Allegheny Mountains and then returned to Philadelphia. Hamilton continued with the army over the mountains into western Pennsylvania. The rebels had dispersed, but the army secured 150 prisoners, all of which, uh, of which only two were convicted of treason, and both of those were pardoned by the president. However, the message had been communicated the force of the military would be employed against the citizen protesting taxes, no matter how unjust they might be.
We should avoid analyzing Hamilton's report on public credit in isolation. It was simply the first of three reports to the House of Representatives that described a comprehensive economic program. Those additional reports will be the subject of subsequent discussion. Well, thank you, Phil, particularly for the analysis of each of the details. And I really appreciate you bringing up the Whiskey Rebellion because it's an interesting period of our history when we don't understand what the situation was for farmers, particularly in the frontier, what was known as the back country in those days, uh, that uh, if you you know had your whole uh, field harvested, say it was rye or, or wheat or what have you, and, and you were going to carry that to market, first of all, the possibility of spoilage was high. Secondly, it was a huge amount, and it would be easier to transport and trade if you had it reduced in size and volume to something that everyone could agree to barter with. And that's where whiskey became, in a sense, a second currency. So that uh, hard currency, that is gold and silver, was very, very hard to come by, particularly after the War for Independence. Uh, it was unknown in most of the back country. So, uh, and, and as you mentioned already, the Continentals, that is the pieces of paper printed up by the Continental Congress, were virtually worthless in, in most people's eyes. In fact, you know, what was a dollar it was trading quite often at a penny, a penny on a dollar. So you had a bill that said it's, you know, worth a hundred pennies. Will somebody be willing to give you one penny for that, either in goods or services or in, in coins? So the worthless is a continental phrase <laughs> carried it on from that. So farmers, knowing this, used whiskey as a medium of exchange. And it's pretty easy to test, you know, the quality of the of, of this, unlike if you had a piece of paper like, well, is this paper actually going to be worth anything? Or uh, is somebody going to be willing to exchange goods and services for this worthless continental? And quite often the answer is no, nobody wanted it. And uh, so you could easily pop the, you know, the lid off that uh, jug of whiskey and take a little swig, test its quality and say, ah, yeah, this is the genuine stuff. Okay. This gallon of whiskey is worth X in the, in, in the general store. I can get some clothing. I can get some tools. I can, you know, the value of that was a, a medium of exchange. So one of the biggest problems the farmers objected to in terms of taxing whiskey, it'd be kind of like taxing your money. So for example, today, if you were to say, you know, I don't trust the dollar. The dollar is dying or is already dead, I guess, as the world reserve currency, which means hyperinflation is on its way. It's an inevitable result of uh, the trillions and trillions of dollars in circulation around the world that most of the countries of the world are now waking up to the fact that, nah, they don't need those dollars anymore. Uh, it was when our, our dollar was the reserve currency of the world and the petrodollar agreement was in place that every country in the world that wanted to buy any oil in any, any market at all had to obtain American dollars to buy oil. And that was, I think, uh, behind a lot of the wars that we have fought in the Middle East to try to preserve that petrodollar. But Clearly, we have lost that. China has now brokered deals with Saudi Arabia to buy oil from them, not in the American dollar, but the Chinese yuan and, and other currencies are being exchanged. The ruble is now the standard for uh, many people, uh, you know, buying oil from Russia, which is a, a large exporter of oil and so on. So the, we, we're going to understand pretty clearly the sort of situation those farmers in the Whiskey Rebellion faced when the dollar fails and hyperinflation hits and you know, we're going to be able to say, like they said in the colonial, in the post-colonial era there, worthless as a continental. We're going to say worthless as a Federal Reserve note, which is what the actual title is on those pieces of paper we carry around that we call 
uh, dollars. So imagine that you say, okay, I recognize that the dollar is going to its true value, which is zero. That's what it's worth. It's just a piece of paper and it's backed by nothing. And now that it's no longer the world reserve currency and Biden has, you know, spent trillions upon trillions, which means he's been printing trillions upon trillions. It has become worth less and less and less each and every day. And so people who are waking up to this want to get something of real value for the dollars they might have in their investments or in their savings or wherever they have. They may want to get something that is of tangible worth that's not going to depreciate so rapidly you can't see how fast it falls down the hole, which is, I think, what the future of our American dollar really is. So they might say, I want to buy some gold. I want to buy some silver because I believe that silver and gold will hold their value as they have throughout the history of human race and so on. So if you went and took your dollars to purchase gold and they taxed you on that transfer from uh, American Federal Reserve notes to buying actual physical gold or physical silver, if they tax you on that transaction and the tax was onerous enough, you realize, wait a minute, the government is robbing me in two ways. First of all, they're robbing me by this hyperinflation, which is exactly what the Continental Congress had done by printing up way too many uh, continental dollars versus what was actually in the economy. So they're robbing you that way, but now they're going to rob you when you want to get something of actual value that you can use in the future for bartering and trading. And that's exactly what whiskey was for the farmers. They produced the crop, they reduced it uh, to a gallon of whiskey, which was very tradable commodity. Uh, you might call it a commodity form of money. And so they were outraged that Hamilton, this man with all this power, decided he was going to tax their money. And I think that is the, the root of the problem of, of that whiskey rebellion. And I, I think the farmers were right and Hamilton was wrong. The government, the federal government, should never have been taxing whiskey because it was commodity money that, that he was taxing. Now, of course, he had created this problem by, well, this report we're, we're looking at here of uh, creating federal debt. And uh, creating federal debt, obviously, it first on taking on those worthless continentals and saying, okay, we're going to redeem them at full value. Yes, the speculators have been buying them up at a penny on a dollar. Now the speculators are going to get a huge profit because they're going to get a full dollar for the, what they paid only a penny for. And the poor chap who was probably a war veteran of the war, uh, war for independence, that war veteran is going to lose all of that because he traded. And yeah, he, like you say, Phil, he, he made a choice to do that, uh, but he did that because he knew that uh, this piece of paper hyperinflated by the federal government is worthless until the Constitution was ratified and the Constitution ratification said, hey, we're going to pay all debts, all the debts that we owe. And that meant paying a uh, full face value. So according to the Constitution, it was the right thing to do to pay the full face value. And yes, Hamilton had a point. It might be very difficult to go back and find the original uh, owner of that. Uh, but I think an injustice was done, particularly those who had suffered greatly in the war uh, and who had sacrificed greatly uh, to win our independence, to be cheating these people seemed to be the very worst thing uh, to be doing. And by the way, I think this points out a, a thing that we ought to consider in our own day, right here and now, that when you have an ongoing war and you have debt that is created because of that war, and then you have endless printing of money, you have enormous devaluation of that, and you have a, a disaster uh, occurring. And, and we, we look at this, this is very real in our day, 
Because consider the war on terror. More than 22 years, the longest war we as a nation have ever fought is this war on terror. And they have spent trillions upon trillions. And arguably, they've wasted trillions upon trillions. Because what did they do in Afghanistan? Nothing. They accomplished absolutely zero other than wasting trillions upon trillions of dollars and, and blood uh, and the lives of, of uh, our soldiery. So uh, the same kind of principles we see that were taking place there are taking place now. That the government, our federal government, is printing up trillions and trillions of dollars, devaluing the dollars that people have in their bank accounts, that people have in their savings, investments, and including even their home. You know, might consider your home the you know, the guardian against inflation, and yet the rapid inflation coming our way, the wave, the tsunami of hyperinflation coming towards us is going to wipe out even the value of people's homes. So it's a disaster to go to war and go into debt unless it's absolutely necessary. And the war on terror since 2001, I would argue, was unnecessary and is involved in the destruction of our economy and the destruction of our liberty. Now, Phil, there's just one point that I would disagree with you on, and that is this. Now, you stated that the 16th Amendment overrode or eliminated the limits set out in Article 1, Section 2, that says representatives and direct taxes. And what we're experiencing today is a direct tax. The government actually most often takes it right out of your paycheck, and you never see that money at all. You're your employer takes it from you before it even comes into your hands. They get the money and, well, maybe a year and a couple of months later on April 15th, you might get some of it back. But anyway, they're going to take it first. And uh, it says uh, in our Constitution, Article 1, Section 2, representatives of direct taxes shall be apportioned among the several states, which may be included within this union according to their respective numbers. In other words, the census is going to take place, determine how many people are in each state. Each state is going to individually receive a tax bill from the federal government. And that state is then going to determine how they are going to pay that tax. Now, the argument is the 16th Amendment actually changed that. But the Supreme Court disagreed in the case Brashaber v. Union Pacific in 1916, just after supposedly the ratification of the 13th Amendment. It clearly said, and by the way, this is the cornerstone decision that the IRS relies upon for the constitutionality of their income tax. And it says uh, this case involved withholding monies accruing to non-resident aliens, people who were not citizens of these United States. And the Brushaber Court explained that the 16th Amendment states that the tax authorized by the amendment must be laid without apportionment. And because the Constitution still requires that all direct taxes must be apportioned among the states, the income tax cannot stand constitutionally as a direct tax on citizens. It can only be a direct tax upon non-citizens, resident aliens, those who are legally in our country with a green card or, or so forth. Also that same year, Supreme Court upheld in Stanton v. Baltic Mining in 1916, the 16th Amendment created no new power of taxation. In other words, if the federal government was forbidden from doing it before the 16th Amendment, the federal government was forbidden doing it after the 16th Amendment in terms of citizens. Only non-resident aliens and corporations were being permitted to be taxed by the 16th Amendment as it was originally interpreted. Another case, 1918, uh, Peck and Company v. Lowe. Uh, states the 16th Amendment does not extend the power of taxation to new or accepted subjects, in other words, citizens. Neither can the tax be sustained as a tax on the person measured by income. Such a tax would be, by nature, a capitation rather than an excise tax. And in Article 1, Section 9, capitation taxes are forbidden 
to our United States government. So we have a system violating the very uh, un clear understanding of the Constitution and an even the clear understanding of what the 16th Amendment uh, claimed to, to accomplish. Now, uh, just one other comment here, and I know I'll, I'll run a little bit long, but uh, that dinner table bargain whereby, uh, you know, it was agreed that uh, these taxes were going to go through uh, as long as the uh, capital could move from New York City uh, down to the banks of the Potomac, which meant Maryland and Virginia were going to give up a large chunk of land, 10 square miles between the two of them, uh, to create this capital. I think that was a bad deal as a Marylander. I really think it was a bad deal. I would have rather that corruption stayed up there in New York City and never come down here to infect our state as our state has suffered greatly, I think, from <laughs> the uh, imposition of all the federal employees that have corrupted our government and, and corrupted uh, our, our land, uh, otherwise known as the land of pleasant living. And it is a beautiful place here in Maryland. I love the, the state and the people, but its government I hate because its government has been affected deeply uh, by the corruption of Washington, D.C. Well, Mike, what are your thoughts on that uh, Hamilton's first report we're looking at? Thanks, Pastor Whitney. You know, you would think that I wouldn't have anything to add on this one, but I actually came up with something. I, I did my usual legal research to determine whether any cases have discussed Hamilton's first report in public credit. Well, I didn't find any Supreme Court cases. I did find one case, and interestingly enough, it came out of the Commonwealth Court of Pennsylvania, which is one of the two courts of appeals below the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania, the other being the Superior Court. Now, the case is called Sullivan versus Bucks County, and it was decided in 1985. There were actually multiple parties in this case, including Neshaminy Water Resources Authority, North Wales Water Authority, North Penn Water Authority, Montgomery County, and Philadelphia Electric Company. The dispute was founded because there was a construction being done for the purpose of creating a water supply for cooling a nuclear generating station. The action was brought to stop it from happening. And Sullivan was a taxpayer bringing a challenge. Ultimately, his claim was dismissed as the court held he didn't state a proper cause of action. There were other parties, however, who were trying to halt the construction, and it just wasn't it wasn't just the taxpayer. Now, I can't claim to understand all the technical aspects of supplying a water source to a nuclear generating station, or how that happens, or why it's important or how are the electric companies involved. I'm not going to pretend to know anything about that. But what I do understand are some of the contractual principles involved here. Ultimately, you had parties looking to stop this project from happening, even though there were already existing contracts. They argued that certain conditions had not been met and therefore they didn't have to reform. And even if the court found a breach of contract, these parties wanted the remedy to be a payment in damages, meaning we'll pay for your losses, but we're not holding up our end of the deal. And people have to understand there are two parts to a contractual dispute. Number one, was there a breach? And number two, what is the proper remedy? Now, in the end, the court held that the conditions that were not met were only not met at the fault of the parties making the claim. And the court said you can't get out of your end of the deal by causing the failures of the conditions. The court found that the parties did, in fact, breach the contract, but found that the remedy was not damages, but rather specific performance. The court made them up all their end of the deal, and the court reasoned that, quote, damages suffered by utility and two water authorities were not reasonably ascertainable, and damages were inadequate due to uncertain availability of alternative water sources and resulting difficulty in receiving licensure. 
Now, in its analysis, the court discussed and cited Hamilton's first report in public credit. They said, quote, although clouded by a myriad of procedural and preliminary contentions, the major argument of Bucks County and NWRA is that they undertook the project in their governmental capacity and therefore have the right to withdraw from or terminate the project. Their theory is that a government of the people must be able to respond to the changing will of the people. However, we are more persuaded by the contention that we must presently recognize the need for the reliability and certainly certainty of contractual relations required to ensure the very stability of a government. A municipality is not at liberty to avoid its contractual obligations merely because it deems it to be for the benefit of its citizens to do so. As early as 1790, this concept was recognized by Alexander Hamilton, then Secretary of the Treasury, who observed that, quote, every breach of the public engagements, whether from choice or necessity, is, in different degrees, hurtful to public credit, and that fundamental principles of good faith dictate that every practical exertion ought to be made scrupulously to fulfill the engagements of the government. And that's where the court cited Hamilton's first report on the public credit. Indeed, our Supreme Court adopted Alexander Hamilton's observation that when a government enters into a contract with an individual, it deposes as to the matter of the contract, its constitutional authority, and exchanges the character of legislator for that of a moral agent with the same rights and obligations as an individual. It prom- its promises may be justly considered and accepted out of its power to legislate and often aid of them. This observation is equally applicable to national, state, or municipal government. I have to say, I didn't think this was, I was going to be able to find anything for this one, Pastor Whitney, but I was glad <laughs> to find this one for the purposes of our discussion. Great, great research, Mike. Thank you for that. It's always a blessing to be able to hear. Here's, you know, how the court weighed in on this. And I, I find Hamilton's argument is, uh, I guess I could summarize it this way. It's a good thing to be in debt. And, and I'm saying that because he argued for uh, having debt as a way to increase your credit. And I know that this is a typical thing. Go, You tell your young people, go get a credit card and you know fill up that credit card because you will create a credit record and people will know your credit worthiness because you borrowed money and you repaid it. <laughs> and that's the part that many people forget. You repaid that money you borrowed. And, uh, uh, you know, yes, there is something to say for uh, having that situation, but you've repaid your debts. But Hamilton seemed to argue that it's good for the government to be in debt in perpetuity, you know, not to ever finish paying it, to borrow more money and to, you know, be in this continuous thing so that you enter into this situation, which many of the European countries at the time already were in, where they were basically debt slaves to the central bankers. And oh, the first central bank being the Bank of England. And there's, anyway, the Rothschilds and so forth taking control of the country through finances. That is, if they could get the government in debt to them as the bankers, and I really prefer to call them banksters. These are gangsters who are parading with a, you know, as if they're doing some favor, but they're really uh, manipulating the entire government. Uh, by indebtedness. And uh, so I think it's a very dangerous thing and that our constitution obviously permits the government to go into debt. But I think it's a dangerous thing. And I'm glad that we had some presidents who recognize that, like uh, we're going to talk about Jackson when we talk about the bank and so forth. But to get the country out of debt is the best thing. And uh, I think we're going to face that here with what is it now 31 trillion and plus, I can't even count how many higher that it's gone than $31 trillion in debt where, where we're currently where we're currently at. 
a path to Whitney, there's even more to that, uh, which has a fascinating connection, I think, with the uh, uh, the philosophy of uh, Bismarck in Germany. And that is that um, <clears throat> Hamilton was specifically interested in binding the commercial and particularly the banking community of the New York area in particular uh, to the principles of the federal government. And so this became a, a mechanism whereby they would be bound to the government because they would be able to speculate on that, that currency. Now, the idea of, of binding people um, is also, that also comes out of uh, Prince uh, Bismarck's uh, philosophy where he, uh, he subscribed to certain social uh, programs, very socialistic programs like uh, 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 social security programs, medical, pro medical insurance programs, and so forth. And his idea was to, to bind the workers of, the, uh, uh, of Germany to the state. And as we see, that had ramifications uh, first in World War II, created a militaristic society, um, in World War II, uh, one and then World War II, I should say. And so the idea of binding a particular citizen group to the government, in effect, really creates a situation where corruption thrives. Mm -hmm. I certainly agree with that. And I, I think what, what we see has developed now is clearly the whole banking industry is, uh, you know, in, in cahoots with the federal government in terms of these, these uh, in, increase in, in uh, the inflation and obviously the bank bailouts that if the banks you know do very bad business which they did in 2008 the government was there to to rescue them <laughs> and and had they rescued them government has no money of its own it's in debt trillions of dollars what it did is took money out of the pockets of american people to enrich the bankers in 2008 and what outraged me <laughs> greatly at that point is that the people who made these disastrous banking decisions, rather than suffering the consequences of their bad business decisions, they were rewarded for doing so. Many of the uh, the heads of these banks received million dollar uh, uh, rewards, you know, year end reward. They were rewarded because they wasted the funds of the money, uh, the funds of the bank, and they got the federal government because of their relationship with those in, in the Congress. They got the federal government to bail them out. And so their bank survived and they got rewarded for this crooked deal that cost us, the American taxpayers, trillions of dollars. And, and they just wasted this money and not only wasted it on American banks, clearly they wasted it on other banks all around the world. And when the Federal Reserve was an attempt was made to hold them accountable, what did you do with all this money? What did you do with these billions and billions and billions of dollars the taxpayers gave you? They refused to answer. Said, we don't have to answer to you. We're the Federal Reserve. We're an independent agency. We're not part of the federal government, and we don't have to answer to you at all. That's what I see these evil banksters are up to, fleecing the American people in order to enrich themselves and enrich their friends. I, I guess I should uh, respond to your criticism about my comments concerning the 16th Amendment. Yes. Okay. So first of all, I, I accept your, your logic uh, completely. Okay. Uh, I think if I made a mistake, didn't make my, my position clear, it was that uh, even though these cases are out there, somehow we've we've managed to ignore them and and go off in this this uh, improper direction. However, having having accepted the criticism and made a public statement, I am entitled <laughs> to retaliation. Sure. <laughs> okay. Uh, I think you made a comment about ten square miles as the capital. Uh, I don't think that's really what the Constitution says. 
Constitution says the Capitol will be 10 miles square, uh-huh. which is different, which is yes. 10 by 10 or 100 square miles. And of course, at one point, I think they actually laid out the 100 square miles, which included a portion of Virginia that Virginia has now taken back. But it is more than it's more than 10 square miles, unfortunately. <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> I stand corrected. Thank you. Thank you for that. And it's curious that Virginia got to take theirs back, but Maryland did not. And uh, that was a particular point in the war, war between the states because uh, Lincoln was afraid that Maryland would take back their uh, territory or at least take, you know, step out of the Union and secede like Virginia did. And, and uh, Washington, D.C. would be surrounded by uh, its enemies. Um, instead, we have Washington, D.C. surrounding all the rest of us and we have become its enemies, not by choice, but because Washington, D.C. has chosen not to follow the Constitution and not not to limit itself to those powers that we, the people, delegated to it. And the power we delegated to them regarding taxation is very dangerous, but the Constitution clearly limits that power to do something very different than what they're doing with the IRS. And, and I, I bring this back up because so many American people don't understand this principle. Capitation tax is a tr- tax from the federal government directly upon the head of the individual citizen. That is forbidden, Article 1, Section 8. Article 1, Section 2 clearly states the process by which the state receives the tax bill from the federal government as determined by their population, and the state determines how they're going to raise the funds necessary to pay that portion of their uh, part of the federal uh, budget. And so the state has a big say in how that's going to be gathered, and the federal government has no say in how that th- those funds are going to be collected, which means the IRS really constitutionally can only exist to tax non-resident aliens, people with green cards, and to tax corporations, as it was originally understood and originally properly interpreted according to the Constitution. But I, I appreciate your, your uh, correction there. Thank you. <laughs> okay. I, th- I think this is a good time to, to look more deeply at the principles of taxation from a philosophical standpoint as opposed to, uh, you know, what politics we've established and followed. Uh, I would I would offer three principles. One is it is necessary to reduce government expenditure to a minimum. Now, a minimum means to the uh, limited enumerated powers of a constitutional document. And I, I understand we're somewhere around 5% of the total budget de- dedicated to those things that are constitutionally uh, legitimate. 95 percent, you know, it's it's pure expansion, uh, unconstitutional expansion of uh, powers by the federal government. So if you think of of taxation in the big picture and now you compare it and say, well, okay, we're only going to deal with five percent of the actual budget that we're talking about, that significantly reduces the problem of taxation. Doesn't make it go away, but still it reduces it significantly. Now you can consider the next two uh, principles. And uh, the second principle is government services should be available to all equally. Nobody should get more government services than another. Now I recognize in, in practice it may be a little difficult to, to implement that, but the, the principle should be there that government is a public service available to all. And that leads to the third principle, which is those who enjoy the services of government should pay equally for those services. And now that leads to a final conclusion, which is that there should be no taxation of the individual, including excise taxes, 
uh, and tariffs. No direct uh, or indirect taxation of individuals by the federal government, that their only source of income ought to be the states, and it should be based upon the numbers of individuals in those states. Mm-hmm. A- amen to that. And by the way, I need to I need to give this caveat to what I just said because I could be accused and maybe even attacked by the IRS here. I am not giving anyone tax advice. I am not advising anyone how to fill out any forms coming from the IRS or not fill them out or whatever. I am not giving any tax advice. I am simply giving the history of our Constitution and I'm giving what the Supreme Court has said about the 16th Amendment. Well, that's all I'm doing. And so if, you know, some IRS agent or whatever wants to uh, come after me because of statements I've made that I'm somehow a tax protester, no, no, no. I'm simply being honest about the history of taxation, honest about what the Constitution literally actually says, and it still says, and literally what the 16th Amendment meant to those who ratified the 16th Amendment. And by the way, whenever we look at an amendment to the Constitution or even any part of the Constitution, we need to go back and ask, what did those who wrote these words mean by those words they put on paper? Not what some judge 100 years later, 50 years later said. No, no, no. What did the original people who put it on paper, what did they mean by what they said? And we know what they meant by the 16th Amendment. Uh, President Howard Taft proposed it, and he proposed it as a tax upon corporations, not upon individuals, uh, co- corporations alone. And uh, later it was corporations and non-resident aliens, that is, those in this country who have the privilege of working and so forth and so on, that was deemed, well, they're receiving a federal privilege because they're in the country and all that sort of stuff. But never was the design of the 16th Amendment to tax individual citizens. Supreme Court recognized that those who drafted, ratified, quote unquote, ratified the 16th Amendment, all of those agreed, this is what it means. And so I am not telling anyone what to do, and I don't want to get in trouble at all with the powers that be, but this is simply the history, and li- and literally, this is the law of the land. Uh, obviously, we find that our federal government is not abiding by the law of the land. Well, I'd like to go beyond that. Uh, I am giving advice, and uh, going further than that, I'm doing everything I can to persuade uh, individuals, citizens of the United States, and others who would, who would be paying taxes, that there is one principle here that we should all remember, and that is the power to tax is the power to destroy. Amen. You know, know, it's interesting with the primaries coming up for the 2024 presidential election. Do we know if there's anybody who's running who's actually talking about these things? Not that I know of. Ron Paul did talk about these uh, when uh, he ran for president a couple different times. Um, You know, it's interesting to see who's opposing Biden. Uh, RFK Jr. is uh, running, but I think he's talking mostly about the vaccine and the fraud of COVID and all that, which is good. I mean, I'm love to hear him exposing what's actually taken place for the past three years. So that that's a good thing. But I have not heard anybody talk about the real issues here. And I, I think this would be a winning issue. I really do, because Americans hate the IRS. Yes, I, other than those who are employed by the IRS, with their 87,000 new employees and billions of dollars. Other than them, I think every all, all the rest of the Americans hate the IRS. They dread the IRS, and they'd love to see it abolished. It could be abolished or reduced to just taxing corporations and taxing non-resident aliens. I'd be happy with that if it was just reduced to doing that job and not attacking we the people, the individual citizens of the United States. There are a lot of people in the country who are not paying federal taxes based on their income. Is that true? Yes, and that, that's part of the structure the IRS has created, you know, that... Uh, there's all sorts of loopholes for those who are super rich 
And there's also, you know, levels below which people pay zero. And I think during Trump that was raised. I'm trying to remember what the exact numbers were, but there was a, a raising for uh, people at the lower end where if you were below that, you paid no federal tax at all. Uh, so there's people at the high end who have a bunch of lawyers, tax experts that can get them all the loopholes so they don't pay much at all. In fact, Trump was criticized for that. You remember he said hey, uh -huh. in a certain year he didn't pay any tax. And his response to Hillary was, well, that's because I'm smart. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. I did. That's right. <laughs> yeah, I think something like 10% uh, of the uh, the citizens pay 50% of the uh uh, oh, it's those more numbers than that. Because of, yeah. It's more than that. I think yeah. the top 1% pay 42% of the federal income tax. Yeah. I think it gets significantly higher when you open it up to 10%. But that incentivizes people who are not paying federal taxes as is to leave the system. You know, why should they care whether that system changes, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's unfortunate. I would rather have a constitutional system. Let's go back to that. And and if you're not happy with the way your your state is raising the revenue to pay the federal bill, well, uh, you got the opportunity to vote with your feet and move elsewhere. Yeah, you you have to have a certain amount of competition, and without competition, it becomes a monopoly. You know, it's it's basically only slightly better than the the old uh, Genghis Khan system, where you know, yeah, he, he was continually on the march. Uh, Going out, uh, finding other other domains that he could conquer. At first, he would uh, they would steal everything they could, and then after that, they would demand. You know, if if there was anything left that was uh, uh, that uh, was not destroyed through that process, then they would tax it. And that's, <laughs> yeah. that's, oh, that, that's that's the good side. You want to hear the bad side? <laughs> well, I think yeah. we, we. My opinion is that we've got a rude awakening heading. At at a, at a very, very rapid pace our way as the destruction of the dollar is underway or what some call the de-dollarization of the world where no longer the world reserve currency. Therefore, the trillions of dollars out there are coming back here. And we know that uh, if you've got more money in circulation, the price of everything goes up and it goes up extremely rapidly at some points and hyperinflation is a, a terrible thing to happen. And it's happened in Germany, it's happened in uh, Argentina, all over the world there's been these situations when fiat currency ultimately leads to a disaster because the government prints more money than it actually should. Well, this is We the People, the Constitution Matters, coming to you over the Freedom Airways of WFYL. We invite you to join us next Friday morning, 8 a.m., as we continue this study in our constitutional republic.